of the coronavirus is something that will continue to alter our habits and familiar patterns of social behaviour for a long time to come. One aspect that can be identified already is that of a change in attitudes towards smart technologies and media institutions. Whether this is temporary or permanent remains to be seen, yet it does focus attention on an important question which is that of regular daily use of powerful technologies of information. Before the crisis, the talk was of intrusive media and worries about surveillance. But today, many people are keen to sign up to movement tracking software that will provide vital information to authorities about potential infection zones and allow freer movement once more. Such shifts in behaviour need careful scrutiny and a research group based at Oslo University is focused on such changes. In today's podcast, I talked to Professors Trina Sieverston and Britta Utri-Arni about these issues. Hello and welcome. I am John Lynch, Associate Professor of Media and Communication at Karlstad University in Sweden. My guests today are two Norwegian scholars who are part of a project funded by the Research Council of Norway titled Intrusive Media, Ambivalent Users and Digital Detox. Welcome, Trina and Britta. Um, I'd like to start with the impact of corona on our digital landscape. I talked to people who only six months ago were concerned about data privacy and surveillance, who are now desperate to download a government tracking app as a way to get back to some kind of normality in their lives, especially if it means their kids can go back to school. What kinds of changes have you observed due to the crisis? I think um, generally it's uh, if the situation wasn't so serious we would really have enjoyed this as a digital media experiment <laughs> uh, because of course uh, we have never been and we didn't anticipate the situation where we would all be locked in the home and we would be completely dependent upon communicating with our digital devices and um, it's hard to really assess the impact long term but of course um, based on our um, data and also what we observe around us of course people have had to um, use digital media and all sorts of media on a much higher scale than before and have also been as you say really thankful that there is the possibility of really making contact with each other and communicate through social media uh, in this period yes we um we did research on this in our project. So we tried to get a questionnaire out rather soon in the early weeks of the lockdown in Norway. And um, we were interested in getting people to tell us about their experiences and impressions. So we asked rather open questions. And um, some of the sentiments that came across were this sort of ambivalence between being grateful for what digital technologies could offer in this situation, because after all, they made it possible to, to work and stay in touch. and communicate and get information, but on the other hand, feeling tired and restless and um, stressed out also from all the being in a strange and scary situation and then having to deal with um, changing your digital media repertoire overnight. Um, So um, it's uh, double-sided, certainly. Yes, I think that's a a good point. I mean, we've we've often associated... uh, what's often described as excessive digital use with increasing stress levels and anxiety. But, I mean, the crisis in one sense has shown that we turn to digital networks as of a way, as a way of alleviating the fear, I suppose. Does that cut into this kind of um, profile of, of people's use of digital media? I think that what we see during the corona situation is increased use of everything. You know, people check news much more often, and in our survey and other surveys, people check news all the time, but they, they don't get relief necessarily from doing that, you know, because there is maybe there is no new information or it's just worse information. So, people, you know, the type of reassurance people check news to know that the world stands and, and it turns out it, it isn't. <laughs> so, so that's one of the things people also turn to, you know, Netflix 
watching, uh, binge watching much more. And we all know that uh, uh, that's um, uh, Netflix and other um, streaming services are set up to make you consume more. You know, it, it's a constant stream sort of. And that's uh, so you watch much more. You also a lot, a lot of people have been forced together at home. You know, uh, students are moving home to uh, the parents and and the families are spending much more time at home. So you also do some old type of linear watching television shows together, you know? Uh, so you have that kind of use. And then you have social media, um, constant, uh, constant reassuring that others are okay through phone use and social media use, you know? And you have those new social uses of uh, Facebook with Facebook concerts. <laughs> so you both have... I think what we have seen is that you both have uh, some traditional media uses that's really ex exaggerated, you know, that people have used frantically. At the same time, you have some lots of new really use of uh, digital media. And, uh, and in addition, of course, you have the, the schooling and the work platforms, you know, which everybody have started to use. So in a sense, we are all... Um, and I, I've also been interested in the fact that also universities and workplaces are now sort of part of the attention economy. We are all sort of trying to get people's attention through various <laughs> media and screen and for the consumer or the user. Um, this is, um, as, as already mentioned, this has often been really overwhelming, but also also a way to just get through the days, you know, that you try to look for um, all sorts of, you try to get life going in a way through using all these platforms, but that it's a quite chaotic picture for many people. Yeah, as, as Trina said, I mean, for, for some people, the whole situation was, you know, such a big mess, right? All kinds of media use just blending together and also all the different spheres of life with work and family and friends and everything just getting mixed together while stuck at home. Um, so, and then of course people try to develop some strategies to get a grip on the situation, uh, such as for instance, um, trying to decide, you know, to check the news three times a day, because if you're constantly checking, you will just go crazy or trying to find some sort of digital communication that works because then you have something to talk to colleagues or friends, um, but not try having to learn new tools constantly, right? So people try to develop these strategies to sort of get some order into the corona chaos. But of course, that's difficult because there are too many things changing at once. Uh, but then there are others who, you know, um, didn't have the same sort of um, time constraints or the same messiness in their lives who felt that they suddenly had lots of free time, maybe too much. And that's a different different kind of difficulty and also plays into a different kind of media use because how much television should you watch if you are all alone at home all the time, for instance? And um, yeah, so, so different experiences, certainly. I also think we, we see in our, our material how people also try to use do several things at once. For example, people report not just using a second screen, but maybe three screens at once, you know, so you have the computer here, you have the TV on in the background, <laughs> you have this gaming um, chatting going on while you are, uh, you know, doing a couple of other things and you also check all the time social media on your mobile phone. <laughs> so um, it, it creates a space, a kind of media space that is really saturated in many, many instances where you try to satisfy both your social needs and your media needs and your, your communicative needs. But it's interesting that um, uh, loneliness is also a factor. And it's, of course, it's a very different, like Brita says, between if you are alone in the situation, which is really terrible for a lot of people who have been all alone in the situation. And you really need to sort of you use um, media just to get basic contact. And in, in that sense, many... I think uh, some of the reports we get is that uh, you cannot just be with people. People feel that conversations, for example, you have to be more active in conversation. You have to constantly sort of say something or you have to constantly, you know, make appointments to see people, for example. And uh, one of the comments you got from a person was that I even miss the people at work that I don't like, you know, <laughs> just, just miss the people. Like you can see in the corridor, just the, f the feeling of being in a society and not have to 
run by appointments or, or messages all the time, but just sort of belonging. And um, in this, in one sense, digital media gives you that kind of belonging, but in another sense, it doesn't. You know, it it makes you feel alienated. So we, I suppose, as you say, the the last what how long will it be? Six months, I suppose. Really, I mean, it's been fairly chaotic and quite. Um, emergency situation and um, fast changing so do you see long-term changes emerging from this experience or do you get a sense that people want to return back to the the sort of previous social um, um, patterns of engagement really uh, or, or are we looking I mean I'm thinking for instance about the the tracking apps and things that that and also I mean you know we're all teaching universities and it's like well we have to be ready at a moment's notice to switch back uh, and so there's a certainly an increasing workload in that sense but are we looking at a new configuration do you think of of media use or something that will that that will settle down is that is that what we tend to do do we settle back into established patterns or are we going to have to have something new? Well, that's really interesting. And we don't know yet because I think that society is just starting to have the conversation about what returning to normal or a new normal will look like. And it sort of affects everything and everyone. Um, and there's going to be lots of different processes of trying to figure out, you know, will people start shaking hands again? Uh, will there still be physical meetings uh, or will virtual meetings be the basic rule in workplaces and then a physical meeting will be like a rare event. We don't know that yet. Um, and um, also one of the challenges in the university sector and in teaching is the having to plan for different scenarios, right? Because we don't know the timeline of the the rest of the coronavirus uh, pandemic yet. Um, so I think that these conversations are starting to happen right now. Uh, when it comes to, to individual media use, I think that... Uh, as, as schools and kindergartens and workplaces um, are gradually reopening, then the day rhythm of everyday life for lots of people is sort of returning to something that does in fact resemble what we had before. Uh, and friends can start to see each other again physically. Uh, and that will sort of return some of the uprooted media patterns uh, in a way back to what we had before. Um, so I think that there will be lots of conflicted processes in which there will be change, but there will also be a sort of return to perhaps doing the same things as before, but feeling differently about them. It's it's really complicated. I agree, and it's um, I think in one at one point we felt felt that oh, of course I will never you know sort of go to car stuff for one day lecture, which I would maybe have done before. I would of course now, or to Copenhagen or to. <laughs> Uh, to London even for a day you know you, you feel that you would sort of never do that again but um, halfway into corona you think I'll go anywhere <laughs> you know for anything <laughs> just to, I'll just to have the feeling of being in an airport again <laughs> it'll just sort of be such a relief so I, I feel very conflicting about it and I also feel um, I also have some health issues which which places a lot of responsibility on me you know because um it means that you have to, for example, one of the one of the advice to uh, to the risk groups is that you don't see you can see people, but not that many different people. Uh, you know, so I feel now um, an obligation to sort of make a choice between my friends and family, <laughs> and you can and also among my students <laughs> because you can see a limited number of people, and you can see those more, but you cannot see that many people you know and i felt those kind of uh rules are so so hard to 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 use or to sort of um to interpret and especially when i start teaching so i think a lot of people will be very cautious and maybe because i teach large classes i'll just make a decision to do it all online you know for at least a year because i can't really see myself selecting some of those 70 bachelor students that i will see personally and then exclude the other 60 you know um, so uh, once we come back in the in the in this uh, fall I think this all these terribly different difficult choices will be more apparent and we will also have students who are 
more at risk, for example, you know, and uh, so uh, people will make all those individual strategies that will sort of collide or have to go together with them. Um, with the society strategies and institutional strategies, and at the moment, uh, I, f I, I feel, and I see many other people feel that this is going to be really complicated. You know, so we're going to have a um, an event, the end of term event in my department. It will be both in Zoom and physical, and it will be both with short presses and long presses, this kind of thing. So. Um, in the short run, maybe we'll have just an extremely complicated social life and we will make all sorts of decisions about who are near to us and who are more distant, for example. That will also have real impact on relationships. Yeah, I think there's a, I think that's right. We, there's, a, there's a sense of almost a kind of a risk calculation with everything now. Uh, in, in a quite literal sense, almost a kind of, kind of equation comes up. Number of people, distance and different things. Uh, which is, is maybe what our reality will be. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, the, it, it's also at the level of sort of sociality. I think, I mean, here in Sweden, the, the sort of tradition of FICA is very important. And, you know, Wednesday afternoon, 30, 40 people in the coffee room socialising. I, I, I mean, I just can't imagine that happening any time soon now with something like that and that's quite a cornerstone of 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 the the sort of principles of sociality in you know within within the Swedish culture so I mean there are kind of big changes which we're going to kind of accommodate in that way um I wonder in that sense then because I'm thinking about sort of people's turn to media in different ways and and I think more historically as well because I think that can be useful for us as media scholars I wonder if today is comparable to almost a sort of war situation. And what I'm thinking about is the way that people say in the First World War in 1914, they would flock then to the cinemas to watch the newsreels. Um, and that established um, uh, cinema as a particular kind of um, engagement or even say the perhaps the uh, the the on American TV during the Vietnam War, the nightly body count or something. There were various kind of media practices and behaviours that we saw very established. Is that something comparable to today? Do, we, do you think there are patterns now emerging of media consumption that echo that kind of past behaviour? Well, um, historically, of course, as you point out, um uh, events sort of or or great historical happenings have always been been crucial for media developments and we know also of course that radio came out of the first world war <laughs> and the military developments and uh, and of course there's um, but there's always an interaction between uh, for example the development of the family and the media use or you know uh, there's um, as, as young people get more independent, for example, they also use more independent media that makes them less dependent on talking with adults, you know. <laughs> so um, I think we will continue to see a, a strong individualization, which is what we talked about now. And, um, and also our society is very, it's a turn from more like uh, more of a, what should we say, societal media regulatory perspective until a more individual responsabilization, which we all already talked about. And we see that with all kinds of media strategies that uh, there is more responsibility on the individual and the individual is uh, sort of um, expected to self-regulate, to regulate uh, media more and also maybe to be an individual role model. Uh, whereas a lot of issues that really have a, you can say things like surveillance, or you can see like the attention economy or digitalization policy. There are really, or you know, even the sort of dependency-inducing measures of social media and gaming. They they have really societal aspects, but they are dealt with more individually. And I think that's that's one of the things we are concerned with in our research is, is to what degree is um, intrusive media. Um, societal political issue or to what degree is it just a, a matter for individuals and our our time our era is 
Our historical era is one of strong individualization and individual responsabilization, and that's also why media use and media policy sort of become a more individual issue and also the way people deal with it become more individualized. I mean, people wrote, uh, I have studied people who hate the television and they really wanted television companies to go defunct and they wanted the television medium to disappear. But people who do digital detox, for example, they don't, they're not against the internet and they don't really see how they can you know, stop Facebook or close down the internet. You can't really write a petition or get a law or something like that, you know, against, like you could for cinema censorship, is that that time is over. So that leaves people with, um, so it's a long answer, but to the historical issue, I think also the issue that we are studying really takes its form and shape from the historical time, which is one of individual mobility and responsibilization. Yes, uh, I absolutely agree. And I think today, um, not everywhere in the world, but in some parts, there is an abundance of media and there is an abundance of technology and there is an abundance of information. And that was not the case in some of the historical parallels you are referring to, right? Uh, So that would also, whether information about what goes on in the world is a scarcity or not, is really uh, a strong factor in terms of how people think about how much they should use the media, right? Uh, so the situation today, um, if there is a sort of media overload, uh, means that this idea of intrusive media can emerge in a completely different way. And also, as Trine says, that there is a turn towards individual responsabilization, but also quite simply to take some sort of action or measure to do some regulation is becoming so difficult because uh, everything is intertwined, everything is connected, and media is part of sort of everything that goes on everywhere in society, right? Um, So also sort of the idea of trying to speculate what would it look like to, uh, well, before you could discuss what would it look like to sort of ban television, but it's really difficult to try to even foresee what it would mean to have a society without the internet. Uh, so it is a different situation, I think, historically, and that sort of plays into the whole question of disconnection. Mm. And if I can continue just a bit for it, because uh, one of the things that we are focused on in our project is uh, we are sort of focused on three levels: the individuals, of course, what they, how they deal with the, how they deal with <laughs> intrusive media or media that they find intrusive, and then of course it's the society level, the political level. You know, is anything happening there at the sort of business and politics level? But we are also in, really interested in the level in between. What happens, for example, um, in in groups, in institutions? Uh, you know, to what degree does, for example, a hospital regulate the way people use mobile phones or or um, even a, a tourist hut that I've been studying, you know, <laughs> uh, what are the signs there that uh, is it okay if you go in the Norwegian mountains and you you go to one of the traditional tourist huts? Can you actually sit in the living room, you know, uh, checking your your phone, or is it is it something nudging you or telling you that that's not acceptable because you should live then live the traditional you know Norwegian hut life, or you should talk and play board games and things like that. Uh, so we uh, we are also interested in all sorts of institutions and families and also the t- sort of negotiations that take place in groups and whether new norms are developing. And we have lots of news items and also people we interviews, for example, a, a group of young guys having a whiskey evening and they show how they all put their mobile phones, you know, in a basket because that's when they want to talk and they may negotiate this solution. So... Uh, since since it's hard to deal with all this individually and, and also we it's difficult to deal with it on a social level, we're really interested in the in society and civil society and families and groups of friends and institutions and how they deal with the intrusive media and workplaces, of course. So if we if we think about that uh, your your project on um, digital disconnection, uh, I saw a headline. I think it was the New York Times few weeks ago and it said the digital detox is dead is that true is is that something then that that has passed is that do you think do you think that still is a has some kind of currency or 
is this a lifeline we just cling to now, like a life raft that we will, won't let go? Well, I think that digital detox is not one thing. And that's why it's really difficult to declare it dead once and for all, right? Um, so certainly the, the whole situation that the world has been in recently does impact our idea of what it would mean to disconnect and whether it would be possible. Uh, but it can also sort of raise awareness of how much you really miss physical presence and how important it is to disconnect in some situations. So a sort of key idea in our project is what Trina mentioned that um, the idea of, uh, of disconnecting or feeling ambivalent or uh, resistant happens in a specific social situation. And then you have to look towards those situations uh, and what goes on there before you can sort of declare that it's dead or not. Uh, we did find some interesting responses in our questionnaire survey of people talking about how they had sort of given up on the idea of regulating in light of the corona situation, saying that, you know, the kids' screen time has just exploded and I used to have rules, but now I just can't bother to think about it. Or it's impossible to disconnect as I would like to in this, in light of this. But that that doesn't mean that the norm has left them. Maybe when things return to normal, they would still have that norm with them and try to pick it up in some new way. Um, so no, I, I don't think it's dead, but also that relates to how this connection is embedded in social and cultural contexts. There are also very strong cultural tendencies, and Trina has written about it, uh, of how this connection is appearing as an ideal in very different situations. So, and I think those norms will and cultural ideas will still be with us. I think if you sort of have, if you think of this two poles, one pole is that you completely disconnect, you know, you leave the internet, you live as a hermit, you know, that's, that's very few people are going to do that. And that's not really what, what digital detoxers are interested in, you know. And then on the other hand, you think that you don't do any self-regulating, you know, you just use all the media all the time as it just comes to you. And both, both of those poles are really not what we're talking about because um, you cannot really live today without taking some kind of action to regulate your media use and also to take pauses or else you will not work or sleep or have sex or you know uh, you, you just really <laughs> you have to uh, because the uh, media is so present and the, 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 our platforms and screens are so present so you, you sort of really have to take breaks uh, and to many people, I think a digital detox uh, for many people used to mean maybe a long break. Now people talk about a digital detox of maybe even three hours, you know, that they just, people talk about how they go for a walk and they put their, they do a detox by putting their phone in the backpack instead of having it in the pocket, you know, and they keep it out of sight for three hours. Uh, and in that sense, like Brita says, it's not... We are just we were fascinated by this phenomenon, and we're fascinated also by the fact that it's so polarized and so uh, infused with morality and strong feelings. And I've never worked in a field where people get so personally engaged and also confess so much. You know, it's that could be interviewed by really hardline journalists who are really interested in you know the surveillance of Facebook or whatever and. Five minutes into the interview, they just want to talk about how they use their phone too much. And they want some advice and they have had complaints from their girlfriends or boyfriends or whatever. So it, it seems to be an issue that appeals to us on a very sort of deep and personal level. And uh, we like it, you know, it's similar to eating or carbs or vegetarianism or how you deal with the environment, that it also seems to get out those strong personal feelings and also those very polarized debates. And um, I, I have no intention of trying to stop those debates by saying, you know, no, this is, this is the answer. I just, we just no, noticed that, uh, you know, our media use has now come to a level where it produces those very strong personal feelings of morality, insecurity, what is the good life, you know, what is right and wrong. And we are privileged to work in a field which produce that kind of engagement. There's plenty of research that people are not interested in. <laughs> so, not this field. <laughs> I mean, that's an interesting point that, the, as you say, it's... Uh... And, and historically, it seems to be the case that it, media use is, is, is tied into 
certain moral questions. I mean, what, why is that such a powerful um, process, a powerful factor there? I mean, parents, and I'm a parent of, of young children as well, and my friends in the UK who've you know, had children home for months now, um, nominally homeschooling, um, you know, as you say, hours of consumption compared to what would have been t- tightly regulated before. Uh, and it's tied in with guilt. It's tied in with good and bad. Um, what, why, what is it about? Um, and, and I know that you, you know, I know that you've published on how f- from the very, the very first cinema scopes or, you know, technologies that were used were, were condemned in that way. What, what is it about this that, that uh, we all, all of us respond to? Uh, we, we feel that pull in different ways. What is it? Because is it? Is it? Does it cut against ideas of sociality? Is it? But it, it seems to be to ideas of quality. It's like, well, this is low quality as opposed to high quality or good. What is it? Do you think? I think well, the short answer is that um, it's um, the 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 doubts that people always have whether this is authentic or not, uh, and it seems to be. Uh, if you go back to you know the the old uh, philosophers resistant to the alphabet, <laughs> the, uh, that uh, with the alphabet you don't really need anymore to remember. You don't really need to have conversations, and you don't need to have conversations between generations because now it's written down. You know, <laughs> and it, uh, there is seem to be one answer. There are many answers, but one answer is this return to the idea of. Is there a real life, <laughs> a real authentic good life that is not mediated, basically? And is that, you know, the, the face-to-face, being together life? And with digital detoxes, these strong ideas about presence, that are you really present? Are we really present now, you know, face-to-face with each other? Or are we, are we not? You know, I can sit here and check my email at the same time if I want to. So to me, that's it's one of the issues that keep. And if you look at all the science fiction around this, I looked at films and books and everything. It's something about that technology and authentic authenticity that keeps returning. Yeah, I think the the case with parents and children is really interesting because if you look at sort of what is on the line in these discussions, it's really strong and powerful stuff, right? It's the development of your child, your the future of your child, which is the most important thing in the world to parents, right? So it's really, and the discourses are so strong in a way that your child will suffer if you use your phone too much uh, and or your child could suffer or get a gaming addiction or uh, something terrible could happen on social media and it's the parent's responsibility to take care of all of this, right? Which, And it's it's kind of daunting in a way that people actually talk about these things because uh, there are lots of other situations in which we are sort of thinking that, okay, families are different and parents are different and people have different values and lead different lives and we should respect that and take a step back. But here there is really these enormously strong discourses coming into the ordinary day-to-day life of families trying to get by in different situations. Uh, So, of course, it's difficult for parents to try to navigate in this um, situation and uh, they just want to do the right thing. But what is the right thing, right? And then the norms are, on top of that, clashing against each other. So uh, on the one hand, it's important to teach children to grow up in a digital world. Um, and that means they have to use digital tools. But uh, And of course, parents who also want to you know, have a social life and coordinate the social life for their kids will depend on checking their phones because that's how it's done today. But then you should be present and then you should put the phone away, right? So it's, it's a completely impossible situation. And even though it's completely impossible, it's something that everyone tries to deal with. Um, and that's very, it's very interesting. I, I'm not sure if I have a clear answer to how we got there and how this sort of very strong morality developed. Um, but I do think there are lots of sort of old ideas about media being potentially dangerous on a societal level uh, that is playing into the situation today. Uh, even though we have sort of already chosen to organize our lives and our societies in a way in which media is embedded. Um, and which uh, sort of creates these these conflicts all the time. 
Yeah, it's also it's also linked, I think, from Brita. What Brita says also with the question of authority, because one of the, um, as I mentioned before, also the the fact that young people become less dependent on older people. You know, the the authority of older people gets weaker with media. Young people can have their own media, their own media worlds, their own conversations. There's also less. Um, uh, I mean, one of the reasons why people were against the cinema was, of course, also because the teachers and the priests and the literary figures, you know, lost sort of the authority and, and power over people. And then the media liberates the consumer in the sense that uh, as a children can have their own life and youngsters can have their own life and students can have their own lives. And we see the same with medical information, you know. Uh, patients go online and sort of become in the can become independent of their doctors so it's also of course a, a power issue that uh, people in power always struggle to get that control but but with the increase of media people also get get more independent and and once people are more independent you you don't really know what they're thinking or doing or what's happening in their heads or who they are communicating with but there are also these wonderful historical um contributions where people talk about how worried they were when their kids spent all the times in the library and they were reading all the time and you know what were they thinking <laughs> what kind of access do they get to adult knowledge and uh, so, so this this growing insecurity that something is going on that we don't know anything about uh, but again i agree with brita it's it's fascinating that this is an issue that people are completely obsessed with and uh, and keep keep asking about and people say they all go into school meetings with parents and this issue comes up again and again and i think what we want to do in the project is to say that the, again this is not just an individual issue and we have to remember that we are dealing with a media industry that is that is perfecting its ways to get our attention you know, and, and young people, students and children are more subject to that than, for example, old professors, you know. It's not that I am better at self-regulating and I'm not so good at it either, but it's also that people are not trying to get my attention to the same degree that they are trying to get the attention of children and young people. You know, there are all the big sort of businesses uh, are trying to get people to form their habits early so they try to get the attention of people who are below sort of 29 or 35 and and we have to and I, I think sometimes also with policymakers policymakers seem to talk about this just as a, an issue of self-discipline they don't seem to really talk about it as an attention economy issue where there are extremely powerful actors that are trying to get your attention because they need to sell your contributions and your data. I think that, that perspective is often also lost in discussions about uh, parents and children. We talk about the dangerous things that uh, children can get into. We don't really talk about the massive pressure that they are subject to from an industry and all the means that industry use to get their attention constantly and why that also makes it difficult for children and young people to actually disconnect or take a break you know because this is such a massive focus on keeping their attention elsewhere yeah i think to a certain extent we can definitely blame plato for some of it um the so that, i mean that's an important point then that there's a sense that a, an important dynamic in this is is a notion of vulnerability as you say or manipulation and, and children young people in that sense have a very different kind of media ecology to to perhaps what we have in that sense. So, I mean, I think back to, I think it was a, an article a couple of years ago, uh, uh, Vesier and Stendhal argued that this, they say smartphone addiction is hyper-social, not anti-social, and that they have this kind of evolutionary model that we have this evolutionary compulsion to... to um, uh, communicate and to converse and things and is is that facility i mean is that in that sense then are we looking at just different patterns of sociality amongst children and young people or or is it or is there an inherent kind of danger in that do you think and i think as well say someone like in a contemporary say someone like bernard stiegler talks about for him the intergener intergenerational lack now 
is fundamental to what he sees as a kind of breakdown, possibly. Uh, is this something that we're going to see expanded, this, this gap between generations? Well, that's an interesting and very difficult question. Um, there is, I mean, there is scholarship on, say, the concept of media generations, in which uh, there is an idea that even though media use changes over the life course, um, what happens when you are young sort of sticks with you in a different way and forms some habits and preferences and routines. And um, and that sort of brings forward the question of whether young people are doing something that's really different different and that we can't really understand um, or whether they are just doing sort of the same kinds of sociality and communication but perhaps on different platforms or in different genres um, so um, I do think that something something that's interesting about the situation that young people are facing today is that it is possible certainly to see some parallels between what they are describing and what we can see sort of sticking with them into, say, working life. For instance, um, the idea of uh, social pressure that's very prominent in a lot of research on young people and also also coming up in a project where we have a PhD candidate who focuses on young people. Uh, so the, the idea of sort of how there is all this kind of social pressure to be a friendly and nice person and to respond and to be active uh, in every way, um, and how that can also become tiresome because there are so many possibilities for it all the time with digital media. But that's uh, that's not very different from, say, the discussions that have been going on recently about working life, uh, now that everyone is um, online on all these digital platforms all the time and available. Um, and, um, yeah, so it's... Um, so I, I'm not sure if there is sort of like a, a big break um, or if it's just sort of different reiterations of the same phenomena. I think uh, once you have studied media history, you also sort of become a bit vaccinated <laughs> against the idea that this is the point in history where everything changes, you know, <laughs> because uh, the patterns are familiar in uh, so many ways. And I think in in our research, we, we maybe see that the, while, while this the cycles keep on going and generations change and, and, you know, we are also interested in adults because we tend to think that the kids, you know, that it's not just a problem with children. We want to sort of look at the adult side of it and that's uh, the, the, um, the, the concern for children and young people has been so dominant, so, but, but adults are also interesting and maybe the point in time that we are now, maybe the most significant is that it's just so much more and ever present, uh, and that um, with the with broadband and the smartphone, you know, and the integration of services into those, you know, those the devices like smartphones is the first point in history where you actually can be connected at absolutely all points in time, everywhere you go. Although as Britta mentioned, that's still great proportion of the population in the world's countries that doesn't have internet access or don't have smartphones so, you know we have to remember this uh, uh, but in the in the internet rich countries there are we are at special point in history because we are always connected and that means both every space you know we can get online and also uh, at all times maybe and that that poses basically more ambivalence, more issues, more areas to regulate. That's, that's also why it's been interesting for me to, to go to mountain areas where they don't have internet connection and you see people go to those areas to get, the, um, to get the digital detox, to get the break, but they also at the same time have concerns about safety. What, what happens if they have an accident, for example, and they would they would then, um, you know, and then their uh, mother, they promised their mother that they will tell that they're safe. So they end up climbing a high mountain where they can get the connection to, <laughs> to actually say that they're okay, you know. So it's, even in those spaces, it becomes ambivalence and it becomes a presence even though you're offline. And I think if I should say something about what is actually special about this situation, it is this presumption that you can always make contact and that also changes the norms so that the expected response time for coming back to somebody is much shorter you know it's um 
it's a, a social norm that you cannot wait five days before you respond to an, to an SMS or a message, you know. Uh, that's really impolite, so it, it impacts you in all those in all those ways, and that means that you're always interrupted by something else because there's always some you know if you have a work life, a family life, or a social media life, there so you'll always be somebody trying to always somebody's pictures you should have responded to or something like that, and uh, and that's for me that's the most important historical shift, which really implies that the situations where you have to deal with these issues multiply all the time. And the norm conflicts multiply and the issues multiply and spaces. It becomes just a much more dominant issue. You know, with television, you could turn it off or even throw a sheet over it and you could have a week's break. If you want to have a week break from a social media account you use often, you have to tell people and you have to take down contact numbers. <laughs> you need a week of preparation for a week's detox. I think that's a, I mean, there's an important point there about the, um, the, the, the sort of quality of the, of, of the, the technology. I think for instance, again, I, I mean, I mentioned Stiegler because he's someone that I read. I mean, he's of the opinion then that digital, te- digital technologies are very different kinds of memory systems because um, he builds his analysis on, you know, from Plato, one of his systems of externalization of memory. Um, and he expresses then a concern, which is very kind of blunt, shall we say, of that there is a tendency to what he calls stupidification. Um, uh, and uh, is there something to this idea then that, the, if you like, the logics, the structures of the technologies is, is, is where we need to focus kind of, critical thinking really because uh, as you say the 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 newness of a smartphone and its capabilities and its obvious uh, uh, ability to just uh, occupy someone's life in that sense and and as you say whether it's app designers or or whoever else or streaming technologies you know, their ideal scenario is that you are always plugged in. Um, do we do we need to focus some kind of thought on that idea of the uh, of of what of how we can um, put some kind of barriers around the logics of these technologies? Does that make sense? Well, if I should answer just uh, shortly, that's um, I think again that if you study this historically, it's very hard to subscribe to the thesis that these technologies are the ones that really are the breaking point because um, uh, that that criticism that it makes you stupid has sort of been been with us you know for for the entire development of technologies and media technologies has been um, that it impacts the enlightenment the memories critical thinking has been sort of a criticism against sort of every type of medium. And if you wanted to look back in history, you say, okay, but people, uh, you know, um, people who write books want pe- want others to read books all the time as well. <laughs> you know, uh, and uh, people who publish print newspapers, they uh, they always try to get people to read more printed newspapers. You know, that's a, that's a very logical there. Or the business model. So um, it's a time now when we tend to contrast um, current media technologies with maybe the last generation. So we say, okay, print is better because it encourages critical thinking. Whereas, you know, uh, but it's, there's also a tendency that once a new medium comes along, we tend to liberate the previous medium. You know, now the cinema is an art thing. You know, it used to be a vulgar uh, sex and violence thing. You know? Now people look back at the cinema going together to the cinema or even sitting in front of the television watching a family show as something of high value whereas for 50 as something that encourages community and uh, togetherness and presence whereas it used to be looked upon as a passive uh, disgusting activity by, by you know 1900s elite. So it, it's very for me it's very hard to subscribe to any theory that there's a inherently sort of 
bad uh, lineup here, you know, going on, and or or that is even especially bad in our time, and that it was better twenty or forty or sixty or hundred or two hundred years ago. I agree with Trina, but I can also try to. Um... I think one of the things that it's possible to point to which is different about smartphones is the, the idea of how the affordances are designed for the possibility of um, sort of interruptions and notifications in a different manner, right? So you are doing one thing on your smartphone, but then messages or notifications or push alerts will come in and sort of will um, take you elsewhere. And we have done some work on this before about the idea of checking cycles and how people feel that they have an idea about what they are going to check, but then the checking cycle is prolonged because something happened, right? And the smartphone is obviously designed for that, uh, perhaps in a different way than, say, the print newspaper. Uh, but on the other hand, if you are looking at what people are doing with um, attempts at smartphone detox uh, or smartphone disconnection, then sort of a, a finding that's coming up, and I've seen this in different studies, is that people actually want to use the smartphone for all the practical purposes that it's really good for. Uh, and then they want to try to perhaps have, rather than putting the phone away altogether, they want to limit some, some of the information streams that cause these interruptions and notifications. So say they really want to use the phone as a camera while on a trip, but they don't want you know social media alerts to respond to, right? Uh, or just as you did with recording this podcast, right? You wanted us to use the smartphone as a practical tool, but to turn off um, in incoming calls and that sort of thing. Uh, so that's sort of uh, from treating the smartphone as a, as a new object and as sort of one thing that we have to deal with in one way, we can see that users are already trying to uh, differentiate and develop a more nuanced view on sort of which aspects of the smartphone is problematic to me and which aspects do I want to cultivate and use in different situations. Um, so I think that's also a sort of um, a response to how um, this sort of like um, uh, a sort of view on a technology as being either one thing or another can be a sort of useful conversation starter, but then it sort of stops <laughs> after a while. It does encourage snacking, doesn't it? The type of it does encourage media snacking, and we all experience that when you you only you want to just find that address in your email, and then half an hour later you're still checking the weekend weather, and it hasn't changed, you know, and uh, and others, and uh, as Brita says that uh, you're drawn into these sort of mindless cycles, that, and of course that is particularly irritating with a smartphone <laughs> it's also i think if you can add one thing about the smartphone that um when people do experience that things are sort of becoming unsettled around them or they don't know what to do find themselves in a new situation because the smartphone is usable for all of these different things and because there can be so many things at once it's sort of one of the mediums that people will turn to in that kind of uh, situation which means that also it's um so these even these capacities of being so you know, you could call it addictive or easy to depend on, also makes people dependent on it in a more positive way. Clearly, the one of the areas that's, um, as we've made reference to, to a certain extent, that's been hugely impacted uh, by the uh, current crisis is, is work and patterns of work. Um, uh, and with, with a, a lockdown situation, people having to work at home and things like this. How significant is this change and moving forward we see companies now facilitating much longer term uh, possibilities of homeworking and things like that um, this is quite a fundamental um, change I think in in our lives in that sense um, is this something that uh, maps onto this the kind of work that you've done and, and are continuing to do well, there is uh, in our project, we are, we have, uh, even before the project started, we did some um, studies of uh, knowledge workers um, and um, trying to um, figure out how um, intrusive media sort of was both part of the work situation, but also something that needed to be regulated in order to protect, say, focused work. Um, and uh, we also collaborate with uh, other research projects looking at, say, social media in working life, for instance. 
Um, and I think that the whole, the, the main connection is what Trina has mentioned about the attention economy and how universities or workplaces, uh, sort of every kind of sphere of society is becoming part of this attention economy, whether they would like to or not. Uh, but I also think it's really important to remember when discussing the corona situation that uh, work is really different for different people. And even though with the crisis and the lockdown, there are so many people who are doing the kind of jobs where they actually have to be somewhere physically at a set time and place. Um, right. And that's um, so it is a sort of particular set of workers who have been in this sort of chaotic home situation. Um, and that's a sort of an important societal perspective also, I think, to, to hang on to. Yes, and um, there are uh, been in quite a bit of university management. And as, as you know, the, the, the cost of buildings is enormous. And it's also a very controversial issue among staff that people want their own offices, for example, although we know that maybe 40% of the time or 60% of the time, even those offices are empty. So it, it plays into, and we have the whole environmental issue of traveling in workplaces, you know, so I think um, of, of flights and uh, whether we should go to as many conferences as we do. So I think there, there are many ongoing discussions in, in uh, workplaces that have to do with office space and have to do with office costs and building costs and, and uh, environmental concerns and, f- and flights and all those material concerns in workplaces that will be impacted by the possibility of doing more online, <laughs> you know. Um, but it's it's hard, as, as um, Britta said, it's hard to know exactly what how it will play out because in most of the workplaces that I've been, there's also been an effort to get people to be more present, you know, to, to come to seminars, to come to lunches. And it's been a problem that especially for universities, that it becomes too privatized. You know, people don't come in and we know those kind of innovative, multidisciplinary environments to thrive. People actually have to meet, you know, and come up with ideas. And we probably wouldn't have this project if we had never met physically and had the chance to sit down, you know, in, in a bar after a conference and think about it. So uh, th- there are huge dilemmas there. And... Um, and people notice that if they are online constantly and they sit, they also get all sorts of issues with the home and work mixing much more, you know, that's harder to separate. And I don't really have an answer to it, but I, I feel that the corona situation came at a time when there were already very difficult issues faced in workplaces concerning, for example, cost of buildings, environmental issues, and uh, and how it will play into it, I don't know, but I'm sure it will be, will be an issue and it will be a reason, for example, to cut down on office space because especially in the cities, you know, office space is so extremely important and many universities, for example, will have to move outside if they are going to keep. Uh, and, and staff is really conflicted about this. And I think this is, a, we also see the discussion about online teaching this fall that our all the people that work in these kind of sectors, they have, they are really ambivalent about should they be physically present, should they be more at home, should they have the opportunity to do it all. Um, I expect also, I'm interested in the take that trade unions will take on this, you know, in the weeks and months to come. Will they demand sort of that everybody should have a right to work from home or they, will they demand that everybody should have a designated space and be present? <laughs> it can go either way. Yeah, because I mean, home conditions are different from different people, right? And for for universities and thinking about, uh, well, the staff will live differently and have different conditions for working from home, uh, but also the students, really, right? And particularly if you're thinking um, internationally, there is there are huge differences in terms of who has good broadband access and who has living conditions that makes the, makes it okay for them to participate in all these Zoom teaching events and so on, right? So it's um, the idea of having a physical place that sort of belongs to the university or the workplace and where people can come if they have a role as students and sort of be on equal terms. It's also sort of a very democratic ideal in a way, um, while there are lots of inequalities embedded in the whole turn to digital. Uh, so I think that there are lots of dilemmas here that we we will have to see how they play out uh, as the situation develops. But one thing that could be good is 
increased awareness, certainly when it comes to the environmental issue, right? Uh, that this will get us to think differently about sort of the idea of just saying yes to flying to a different city for a two-hour meeting. If we can sort of find different alternatives there, that will certainly be a good thing. Yeah, and in that sense, I think also that it, the, the inequalities are, are so important because you, on the one hand, you have issue, for example, of international students that can now can now not travel, for example, to another country, and in the sense that uh, will make it much cheaper for them to study. <laughs> you know, we all know that in at least in the big cities like Oslo and Bergen, in, in order to, for example, live here and work, you have to, or London or New York, you have to have enormous amounts to pay rent, and that means you need a job, you know, so you can study less, but whereas if you are at home, you it's much cheaper. Um, so so the, that issue also of the old sort of town square being together is also now a very costly thing for for a lot of laborers and workers and students and and it can be cheaper not to be here so it's again i think this will we'll test our ideals and our ideas about what is a community of intellectuals for example or a work community it will be be tested in a sense it's an it's a bit of a novel issue it's a I, I don't have a firm position myself, and I think a lot of people are in that situation. You don't really... Should we demand that everybody come back, or should we demand that everybody could be off, you know? I don't really know. <laughs> but it has yeah, huge I think, impact. I think there's an important point there. Uh, I think it was uh, Linda Gratton in last month's Financial Times talks about how, you know, all, almost all innovation and creativity takes place through people's kind of randomly meeting almost and that without that 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 experience is is is, is going to go and as you say i i think uh, you know this this year of of no academic conferences i mean i think of all the collaborative projects that i've been involved in have been initiated over coffee or you know you 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 walk in accidentally into someone's presentation and you realize there's a connection between what they do and you do and those things, I don't know. They just don't seem to be replicable in other it, via Zooms and things. And I, I, I'm not sure how that's going to work. But um, uh, we're kind of at the end now. Um, so just really one last question, um, um, which is something about your own media consumption, I'd like to ask. Uh, so what is what is good to watch on Norwegian TV at the moment? Do you have uh, particular shows that you're looking at right now? I'm interested in, in what people are, are watching. I teach television series and things. So what is it that um, Norwegian TV, as far as I remember, was renowned for slow television. That seemed to be at the television studies conferences in recent years. What are things at the moment? What is it you're watching? Well, I have younger children who occupy the television set when they are allowed to do so. Um, um, so um, I'm not really the best person to answer this. Um, I One of the things that has struck me on Norwegian television during the corona period was how um, one of our, our commercial service broadcaster, which is one of the big channels in Norway, they sport has been really important to them. And so they have built a sort of whole television corporation around the idea of having lots of sports coverage. And they just kept on with sport news every single day, even though there is, of course, no sport news to report, right? So it's just uh, we one athlete after the other, you know, talking about how much they miss regular <laughs> training and that sort of thing. But they were able to keep it up because, of course, then they can keep people employed and people are watching and then, yeah. Uh, but I'm not really interested in that, so I haven't been following it myself. It was just some sort of observation about what has been happening in in TV now with the corona. I think that for myself, well, what I'm watching right now is that uh, just like people, lots of places in the world, I'm watching Normal People, which is on Anacorda Public Service Broadcaster. Here. Yeah, so am I. I'm uh, watching Normal People and uh, discussing whether, uh, yeah, whether it is really as brilliant as everybody think <laughs> usually try not to watch too much of what everybody else is watching but it's a bit it sucks you in a bit the series um i think for my own sake i have watched a lot more news and discussions during this 
time. I have watched debate programs more, that kind of thing, had it on in the background. And I think some of those qualities of linear television has been uh, more present for, for me and in my household. We have, even though, you know, we will sit around maybe with an iPad each or something, we will have some more of those linear shows on them. We will sort of, I've watched also the, the regular evening news more often than I do, also because I'm more at home, basically. Uh, and because there there seemed to be a logic, also because I, I seek reassurance, which I I don't get, but I want to know, you know, if the, if the, uh, suddenly we are getting into the second peak or, or there's suddenly a vaccine found or something like that. I would like to know that. And of course, uh, it's a relief also that other things are happening, but um, I think like, like which started in 2016 with the whole of 2015, the whole sort of drama of Brexit and Trump and American election and, and the unfolding disaster of the United States and parts of Britain. It's, uh, it's um, engaged me and lots of other people in a way that uh, other yeah, foreign news didn't really used to do. And that also, of course, is an, uh, an ongoing situation that seems really dramatic and, and seems to yeah, pr provide enough material so that then still, still the, the news is still an interesting place to return to, I think. Yes, I mean, by definition, the, the, the response to the, to the corona crisis has been a national. We've seen sort of very much a, an articulation of, 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 of national response and national broadcasters in that sense then playing a much more kind of central role, which has gone against perhaps what we've, as you say, our cosmopolitan transnational travelling that we've been used to perhaps yeah i've studied public broadcasting also for many years and you also see that of course in national crisis that that they have the are among the few that really have the authority to to sort of act as a voice of the nation and that that hasn't really gone away you know and the and the traditional sort of line up with with news broadcasters and elite sources and all of that it's still really works and will draw huge audiences in a crisis situation good well thank you both very much um thank you for uh, all of the conversation today um thanks again